Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today we're discussing some of the most controversial and racially sensitive cases in the last couple of years. And I want to welcome Alexis Hogue is a professor at Brooklyn Law School. She teaches and writes on criminal law, criminal procedure. Prior to academia, she was a criminal defense lawyer at the NAACP Legal Defense. We're also joined by Rachel Harmon. Rachel is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. She's one of the nation's top experts on police law and has actually written the book on it, The Law of the Police. Daniel Harawa is a professor at Washington University and St. Louis School of Law. He teaches on criminal law and evidence. His research focuses on the intersection between race and criminal law and procedure. Today, we're going to look at a few of the most high-profile cases to drive the conversation. And I thought, why don't we start with George Floyd for a number of reasons, but why don't we start on a positive note? Alexis, why was there a conviction here? We were talking about a really awful case where someone died unnecessarily, but it's not always the case that a conviction happens. Correct. Thanks, Joel. It's a real pleasure for me to be in conversation with Daniel and Rachel. This is a topic that could you could fill a whole semester on. Rachel clearly has written a book on it. And so we won't guarantee to cover everything exhaustively during this time together, but I hope this will start a further conversation for all of you. And I know all of us will be sh- sharing resources and where to look uh, you know, beyond and how to keep learning about these issues. Uh, so Joel, you opened up with Derek Chauvin's trial for the murder of George Floyd. Daniel and I conferred a lot about this, why it was that this case was so different in terms of bringing charges, because that's unique actually going to trial, again, that's unique, and then actually having a conviction, again, all unique features. I think a big part of this was the fact that, yes, it was videotaped, it was circulated, you had a lot of pressure on the local prosecutor's office to to indict. Uh, They actually transferred it, I believe, to the state's attorney general office to actually conduct the trial. So they didn't want to have any appearance of sort of impropriety with the local prosecutor's office that often works with the local police department on essentially, you know, all of their criminal cases. You also had a jury pool that was quite racially diverse. And that is another unique feature. The Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama and Berkeley Law School in California has done extensive research on the systemic racial discrimination in jury selection. And so we know that they're in general across the country, in state and in federal cases, you have a disproportionately lower representation of people of color, particularly people that have had contact with the criminal legal system. And so what you had in this jury, I believe the pool, and you know, Rachel and Daniel can feel free to chime in. I think it was about um, half people of color, including perhaps four African-American jurors. Again, another unique feature. This was a case in which you also had the police chief testify against the officer. And again, I think this was this heightened awareness of George Floyd's murder all across the country. I mean, this was an issue that was all over the world. And with that kind of attention, I think there was a sort of focus on bringing about some sort of remedy to sort of appease the millions of people 
that we're demonstrating. And so I can't point to any one feature, but I've just, you know, pointed to a few. And I, and I know that Rachel and Daniel probably also have thoughts about this. Daniel, I know that you've written on how courts are treating prior acts or how, when bad behavior in the past can be allowed in or when it's kept out. Was there something interesting that happened in this case in your mind? Sure. And I'd like to second Alexis's thanks and excitement about being with everyone today. You know, one thing, just to piggyback on something Alexis said, which I think is important, is I think COVID actually made a difference in this case. And I say it for this reason. So we not only had the video, we've had videos of police killing Black people before, but it was a video that you couldn't turn away because there wasn't really anything else going on in the world, right? So you had these mass protests at a time where the world was really standing still for a lot of, in a lot of ways. And so I think just kind of the focused attention on this and kind of the movement that built around it was in part due to kind of the circumstances of our world and just the weird space we were in, in May of 2020. But, you know, I I think what's also interesting about the case is that Derek Chauvin, in terms of kind of who he was as an officer. So his prior uses of force came into play to a degree at the case. So the jurors heard that he had used force similarly in at least two other instances. But then there was also Chauvin's defense in trying to paint George Floyd as a bad actor by bringing up his prior arrest, but the judge limited the jury's use of that. So it was really, I think the judge did a careful job of making sure that the jurors decided the case based on the facts of the incident and not based on who the defense was painting George Floyd out to be or who maybe the state was painting Derek Chauvin out to be more broadly, but really kind of focusing the jury's attention on the facts of the particular case at a time when the whole world was focusing on the facts of this case. And Rachel, as our expert on policing, generally there are a number of obstacles to when it comes to prosecuting police officers. What did you see in this case? Well, you know, in, in this case, they had overcome one of the most significant obstacles, which is proving what happened because they had the citizen video in this case. And I think it's not that video is always the answer. There have been many cases in which prosecutors have used video and not succeeded in a prosecution. And in fact, only about a third of the officers who are prosecuted for deaths are actually convicted, which is a much lower rate than non-police officers who are prosecuted for violent crimes. But proof is one of the biggest problems. And and here you did have the video. You also have bias sometimes in the carrying out of the investigation and prosecution. This case was so serious and so immediately, clearly problematic that the investigators and there had been scrutiny on investigations in Minneapolis before this case, that the investigation was carried out in a way that might have reduced some of the obstacles that can come from a compromised investigation. In some places, legal protections and state law can pose burdens on charges that make it difficult. And you have to remember that officers are professional witnesses and juries are often sympathetic to the genuine challenges of the job. Those challenges seemed less severe in a case like George Floyd's where he was clearly subdued at the time of the use of force. Had you seen, you know, back in your justice days, had you ever seen a police chief get on the stand and testify against 
his own officer? No, I can't say that I have. I think so. That is actually a really important fact about this case. And generally, when we talk about prosecutions of police officers, especially for the use of force, because remember, uses of force can be lawful or unlawful and distinguishing between the two is very different than other kinds of police crime. If you're talking about corruption, taking a bribe, if you're talking about a sexual assault, there's no question that if the officer did it, it's illegal. Here, the question is not only what happened, but then whether what happened was legal or illegal. And juries are very reluctant to fault an officer if other law enforcement don't see what they did is outside the boundaries of acceptable behavior and the law. So you often will look for law enforcement testimony on the prosecution side in order to get a successful prosecution. Here, the police chief was involved. That is unusual. And I can't believe that it might not have made a difference. Well, in that case, you all mentioned Derek Chauvin was convicted. He will spend a significant portion of the rest of his life in jail. In a case that hasn't gone the same way. Let's talk about Breonna Taylor. For many of the viewers, this will all be news they're already aware of, but since there may not be the same level of the facts amongst everyone in the audience, here was a case where police broke into the home, broke into into Breonna Taylor's home, looking for someone else. And as a result, she ended up being shot. In fact, they weren't looking for a person, they were looking for evidence of another person's drug crimes. So they believed that her ex-boyfriend might have left drugs at her apartment and they got a warrant, what's known as a no-knock warrant, to enter her apartment to look for evidence of the drugs. He was the ex-boyfriend and actually the other person also involved were already in custody at the time they executed the warrant at Brianna Taylor's apartment. When we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, it protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And as a default uh, standard of what reasonableness is, we expect that searches of homes are conducted pursuant to probable cause and a warrant. But there are exceptions, but that's the general rule. And at common law and also under contemporary constitutional law, the rules that officers are supposed to knock and announce their presence and be refused entry before they forcibly enter a premises. And that rule doesn't apply under certain circumstances, like when an officer has reasonable suspicion that it would be dangerous or futile or inhibit the investigation because it would allow destruction of evidence for officers to knock and announce their presence before they go in. And so officers can present information in a warrant affidavit and the magistrate can find that reasonable suspicion and issue a no-knock warrant. Officers can also make that determination at the scene and then it can be reviewed later. No-knock warrants like the one that was issued in Breonna Taylor's case, they're often executed by SWAT teams, which have grown much more common over time. And the idea behind them is that if well-armed officers break in suddenly and surprise and confuse the occupants, then it's going to make it safer because the officers will be able to exert control in executing the warrant, which was a search warrant. But in this case, and in dozens of others, civilians and sometimes officers have been killed, often because residents point guns or shoot at officers who are breaking into their home when they don't know who's there. And in response, some cities have banned officers from asking for no-knock warrants. 
And a few states have banned judges from issuing them. And in this case, the individual, the, the people who are actually home, it was Brianna Taylor and her current boyfriend, who, you know, by all accounts, was scared for his life when all of a sudden people were breaking in. Yeah, absolutely. He had a permit for his gun and he says that he feared that someone was breaking into the house and that's why he shot at an officer and then the officers responded with fire. Now, in this case, this warrant and the officer's tactics have gotten a lot of scrutiny because of the attention to her death. But in lots of other cases, these no-knock warrants are issued or warrants are issued and searches are carried out, often with insufficient evidence. In this case, an officer has admitted that he lied in the affidavit. It's not clear that the affidavit really satisfied the threshold for a no-knock warrant. And we don't see that in most cases because these similarly inadequate warrants aren't getting the kind of scrutiny that this case has generated. So I think we should really be looking at this case as a symptom of something that might be going on more broadly that we should be concerned about. In this case, there wasn't a charge against the the officers who killed Breonna Taylor. Alexis, what happened there? Why didn't the grand jury indict? Again, there's no one clear and quick answer to that question. But you had, this was in in Kentucky, Commonwealth. And again, it was handed off, I believe, to another set of Commonwealth prosecutors. And when they brought the charges before grand jury, the grand jury ended up not indicting for Breonna Taylor's murder, but I believe for lesser charges having to do with endangering sort of other bystanders because of the the shots fired from law enforcement. And so there were some charges returned from the grand jury, but not sort of what everyone was expecting and hoping for, given the tragic loss of life there. Grand juries are supposed to be a separate institution relative to the prosecutor's office, relative to the court system. In many states, defendants are not present. So the law enforcement officials wouldn't have been present. Defense attorneys are not present. It's generally just the prosecutor and lay people. And unlike juries that convene for jury trials, where there's this open selection process, it's generally, you know, open court, people are summoned, it's whittled down to 12 and then alternates, and they sit just for that trial. A grand jury are a group of lay people, citizens that are summoned, and there's no selection process. They show up, they sit, and then they can decide whether or not to indict on any number of cases. Usually they convene over a a set period of time. So it could be six months, it could be a year, it could even be extended beyond that. So you have a group of citizens and the prosecutor has exclusive basically controlled what information to bring before the grand jury. And they they create the universe in which the grand jury considers possible charges. They consider the universe in which the grand jurors are privy to certain evidence. And so if you have, you know, prosecutors that have a myopic focus on what to bring before the grand jury, you can have information, you can have maybe more serious charges that aren't even on the grand jurors' radar and they don't know what they don't know. And so in this instance, there's been a lot of scrutiny, as Rachel mentioned, of this case that we don't always get in other cases. But afterward, you've had grand jurors 
speak up to media and other outlets about the fact that they had questions that the prosecutors didn't answer, that they didn't know that there were other charges they could have selected. And so it became a really frustrating process. And I think the, the one silver lining is that the public is now somewhat more aware of the role that grand juries can play in our criminal legal system. It's interesting because we're going to, you know, we talk about over-incarceration or mass incarceration um, as a, a problem with the criminal justice system. And then in cases of injustice, we are often upset when people aren't incarcerated for long periods of time. But in this case, could you envision a world or have you ever heard of a case where an improper warrant led to criminal charges against the person who issued the warrant improperly? Ooh, I mean, that would be the judge, right? Um, and, you know, as, as Rachel's already laid out for us, there isn't really a lot of scrutiny. And it's often law enforcement officials that will bring information before a judge. These decisions are made in mere moments. There's not outside sort of investigation from the magistrate who's making that decision. And so, you know, you might end up with a lot of finger pointing and we haven't addressed qualified immunity yet, but I'm sure there is some kind of, you know, in the civil context, at least ways in which, you know, someone working in their state official capacity would be immune from some sort of uh, maybe civil case. Judges will be absolutely immune for issuing a warrant. So if that's not the answer, why don't we why don't we delve a little deeper into no-knock warrants? One of the things where this type of law enforcement action seems so problematic is how it connects with self-defense rights and how it connects with gun ownership. Rachel, maybe could you jump in with a quick explanation? If somebody comes into my home, I can actually use my gun against them? Yes. So you generally have a right to defend yourself if somebody attacks you. If you're out on the street, traditionally, you have a responsibility to retreat if you can, rather than kill somebody, if you could do so safely. As stand your ground laws change that a little bit, but that's the traditional rule. If that rule doesn't exist in your home. We have what's called the castle doctrine, which allows you to defend against somebody who's attacking you or committing a felony in your home. Uh, to defend yourself. And uh, that allows you to shoot uh, burglars who come in who are threatening you. And that, if you think about that and the idea of law enforcement who are going in now with a warrant that says they don't have to knock and announce themselves, you can see that the officers are fearful of people inside who might possess guns and the people inside are fearful of officers. And actually, you can get into situations in which both people act lawfully in shooting at each other. So more than 40 percent of Americans live in a home with a gun. SWAT teams increase the militarism and the swiftness of these entries. You know, you can see that the conflict is one that is uh, serious and growing. Just to jump in really quick, I think the tension that Rachel's pointing to extends outside of the home, right? It goes to traffic stop. It goes to street encounters where we're in this moment where we're kind of increasing or expanding the right to gun ownership, which necessarily makes encounters more dangerous for police officers, right? Like it is more dangerous for a police officer to encounter an armed person than an unarmed person. But as we're increasing gun ownership and as we're loosening gun restrictions, the question becomes, well, what is a reasonable reaction in response to somebody who's lawfully carrying a gun? And wrapped up in that is like, who do police officers perceive as dangerous? Who do they perceive as kind of the person who would legally carry a gun versus illegally carry a gun? 
And then you get race factoring into this in really kind of real concrete ways that play into all kinds of deep conscious and subconscious prejudices. And so Black gun ownership, whether legal or illegal, is just perilous in a way that it may not be for white gun owners, whether it's in the home, whether it's an open carry state where a Black gun owner is carrying the gun legally, whether it's in their car during a traffic stop. It just really is a fundamental tension that we can't really, or that we haven't really grappled with in terms of expanding Second Amendment rights. But what does that mean for law-abiding citizens, especially law-abiding citizens of color? All right, let's have a quick break for the MCLE code. The code is 080-119. That's 080-119. Back to the interview. Well, now that you mentioned that, maybe it's a great time to talk about the Flando Castile case. Daniel, that case, it it really speaks to me as exactly what you're saying, Um, where someone was perceived as dangerous. Maybe I'll let you just pick up from there. And maybe if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit what happened in that case for those who may not have it associated with the name Philando Castile. Yeah, so this was also on video in 2016. Mr. Castillo was stopped during a traffic stop and he told the officer that he was armed lawfully. And then when he went to reach for his identification, the officer said he thought he was reaching for his firearm and shot, right? And that officer was acquitted of all charges, which I think kind of just highlights whether it's a no-knock warrant or a lawful gun in the car. It really, the law depends so much on the officer's perceptions, right? And Guns are scary generally, and officers may perceive guns as being even more scary depending on who may be carrying that gun, right? And so when blackness in many ways is associated with criminality, with violence, that just in some officers' minds may increase the inherent danger of the situation, whether fairly or unfairly. Um, And so it, it really does create this tension where rights don't look the same for everyone in terms of what they can or cannot do when interacting with police officers. And in the development of Supreme Court law on the use of force, there was an attempt in you know, the, the 70s to litigate these issues under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that was a, an amendment in the wake of Reconstruction that was specifically meant to extend the protections of criminal law to Black people. Black people who had been harmed or Black people that were alleged to to harm others. And the Supreme Court said, no, these are Fourth Amendment issues. This has to do with seizure. Use of force has to do with seizure. And it's not a subjective standard. It's objective. What would a reasonable officer do in this situation? And so what Daniel's talking about in terms of Mr. Castile reaching for his identification, announcing By the way, I have a lawful firearm. And what would a reasonable officer do in that situation, seeing someone reaching for something after having announcing that they have a firearm? And so that's where we have, when when you return these questions then to a jury, 
And they have to decide what would a reasonable officer do who has been trained to use force. And it is reasonable if an officer believes that they are, their life is in danger, the lives of others in danger to deploy lethal force in response. And that's why you end up with, with an acquittal there. I have to say what Daniel and Alexis are describing, I think they've done a really nice job of laying it out. This is not unlike many areas in which we're reforming the law in ways that are likely to mitigate the problem. This is not an area in which we're reforming the law in a way that's likely to mitigate the problem. Concealed handgun permits have skyrocketed. More than 20 million people have concealed permits today. Black gun ownership has gone up dramatically. Concealed permits have gone up dramatically. And many other people, that's despite the fact that many people now live in states where no permit is required. So This is going to be an ongoing problem, the conflict between legitimate officer fear and also problematic officer fear that's tied to race and assumptions about race are going to intersect with unarmed populace in ways that are going to continue to raise conflicts, I think, in the future. Uh, Let me transition into another case. Daniel, I think you brought that one up by discussing how perception of dangerousness can lead to an escalation in police encounters. In a case that where things went a little bit differently, why don't we talk about Kyle Rittenhouse? Here we have a man who was running away from what sounded like some type of a, a shooting, holding a very large weapon. He was not shot, which is good. Let's put that on the record. But I guess first off, maybe we could address that. There was a lot in the press about how there was a privilege to that, the fact that he wasn't perceived as perhaps dangerous because of the way he looked. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it is a coincidence that Kyle Rittenhouse was a white teenager walking with a gun as opposed to a black teenager walking with a gun and how the police treated him versus how they would have treated a black teenager in that same situation, right? And while it's hard to kind of know in the moment with pinpoint precision what the police officers were thinking as Kyle Rittenhouse walked by, it is just hard to imagine a world where we see Black kids walk around with AR-15s and nothing happens. I mean, we see Black kids with toy guns get killed for having toy guns. And so it's... Or, or Skittles. Or Skittles. So it's, it's one of those questions where it's like you intuit the answer or you intuit like why this happened the way that it happened in Kyle Rittenhouse's case versus Tamir Rice's killing, for example. But because it's so wrapped up in perception and the moment and what the officers are encountering, it's really hard to kind of, you can't say it with a sureness that maybe some people would like to say it. Like there's no moment in time where you could say that is where they said, oh, that's a white kid walking by, let him go versus if that was a black kid, I would have shot him. And again, for those who, who don't have the names on the tip of their tongue, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, here we had a teenager show up at a Black Lives Matter rally, ostensibly to protect local businesses. In his defense, he described how he wanted to be there to help, you know, whether or not he was making things more combustible by bringing a big gun into a rally is a whole nother question. But in the excitement, he was involved in three shootings and two people died and he was found not guilty. So why don't we talk about something 
you know, I, I've spoken with with the panelists prior about this case. Alexis, you mentioned that something unusual was the relationship between or the perceived relationship between Kyle Rittenhouse and the judge. Yeah, I think this was something that anyone who had tuned in to any part of the trial would have noticed. It's something we all observed just in our conversations among each other was the fact that the judge in the pretrial evidentiary issues um, consistently ruling, you know, judges operate with discretion. And generally in these sort of trials, you tend to see that judges err on the side of sort of excluding, you know, evidence or, you know, allowing evidence and depending on all kinds of factors. And in this case, it seemed to be that when the defense was asking for certain evidence to be excluded, the judge was in agreement there. And when the prosecution was, you know, had some pretrial evidentiary issues on, on what to include or exclude, you know, the judge was ruling against the prosecution. The judge used very sharp language to refer to the prosecutor, their tactics, their arguments. And we routinely see this in state court. It's usually directed at the defendant and defense counsel. There was an instance when the judge was reviewing some of the videotape footage. There was a lot of cell phone footage, various sort of media that had been captured. And at one point, and there's multiple photos of this, you know, Rittenhouse, the defendant is seated or, or like leaning over the judge viewing this footage before the judge makes his evidentiary ruling. And I have never seen a situation in which a black defendant, you know, is kneeling over a judge looking over evidence when it's undisputed that the defendant shot and killed two people. It's just something I can't fathom. And so we're seeing all throughout this process, the way that Kyle Rittenhouse is, is extended his youthfulness. We were reminded, you know, he was 17, he was a child, he's a teenager, and he's extended this presumption of innocence and his actions are looked at you know, with careful consideration, deliberation. And I don't want to deny defendants, this kind of treatment, I want to level up. and I want all defendants that come before, you know, judges to, to, to be given that kind of consideration, that kind of deliberation. I want black children to be treated as children and not necessarily tried in, you know, adult court, which often happens. I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse was appropriately, you know, prosecuted in adult court as a 17 year old in Wisconsin, but, you know, black children don't get the extension of their childhood uh, and don't get a presumption of innocence, aren't, you know, often arrested without incident, released pre-trial, so they're not detained while awaiting trial. All of these features that happen in Rittenhouse's case, I, I would prefer that they would happen across the board to all defendants. Rachel, you've seen some trials involving homicides. Have you ever seen a judge act the way he did towards Kyle Rittenhouse? I didn't watch much of the trial, but the only cases in which I've seen judges express real hostility to the prosecution and sympathy to the defendants is actually in prosecuting police officers for the use of force. So I have seen district court judges in federal court just blatantly hostile to the idea of prosecuting a particular officer when the Department of Justice brings charges. Other than that, I can't say I've seen a lot of hostility to prosecution. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. 
Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.